Welcome to the 57th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Darren Fallis. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about rolling out two-factor authentication, and we have a special guest, Darren Fallis, who has helped with the rollout of 2FA at a major research university. Hey, Darren. Hey, Jack. He's a pretty stand-up guy, and we asked him to join us today because we've been talking about security-related things recently, and he has practical experience doing some of these things, um, if not with the specific hands-on for some of the pieces with knowing the right steps to take. And we figured he would be an excellent resource to to sort of pick his brain and see what what our dear listeners can glean from this process. So if uh, you don't mind, Brendan, I would like to start out with a question for our esteemed special guest. Coming from our last several episodes on security-related topics, one of the things I think is not well understood uh, by folks on the internet, with air quotes, is the difference in the uh, two-factor or multi-factor authentication apps that you can use on your cell phone. Um, and I'm talking about Google Authenticator versus Authy, and there's some others that are less used. Um, but there's lots of, of conversation on the internet about which apps are better uh, to use. There's conversations about, well, Authy has a better UI design, which I frankly don't care about. Um, there's conversations that the Google stuff is more secure. And I've come to figure out it's all about what the application does with the uh, time-based one-time password seeds. Uh, the Google Authenticator stores them on the phone, and that's it. So if you lose your phone, you have to reset all of your, your MFA stuff. Authy stores those in a remote service. So if you change phones, you can sync up your Authy app and have your codes back, uh, which is some might view as handy. Others is view as a security weakness. What do you think, Darren? Ah, uh, yeah. So we view, we have sort of a data classification document, sort of green to red and purple for super secret stuff. And I like to call things like TOTP seeds black. I mean, they are, they are the ultraviolet super secret stuff. You're really not supposed to have those anywhere but the authenticating party, which let's say is Google in this case, and the, and, uh, or the relying party, and then your device, which is your phone. When you sync those around other places, it opens up a possibility of risk that's not supposed to happen. Um, the, the factor we're discussing with DOTP and things like that is a something you have. It's generally supposed to be your device, your phone. Um, things that is something you have are the, the, the risks that, that that's exposed to are generally um, theft. Someone has to be there to take it from you or you have to lose it. Um, it should not be possible for someone to go out and steal that factor without physically being present. Someone from Nigeria should not be able to get those from you. But if they can get access to your Authy account in some manner, maybe that's a compromise at Authy, maybe that's a phishing attack on you at your Authy or something. Did somebody just port my cell phone number? Oh, crap. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, how do you secure your Authy? You know, do you do it with a phone number? It's a whole other issue. But they shouldn't be able to get those seeds unless they have your physically have your phone. Um, and that's the way Google Authenticator works. That's the way the, um, the Duo app works. Uh, LastPass, I think that's something similar. They are doing a funny thing with their browser plugin and TOTP and weird things. Um, however, 
it's super handy for people to be able to sync those things to Authy. Um, I think Authy knows that they're a target of that kind of attack, um, clearly. So I'm sure they're doing a bang-up job at securing themselves um, and their servers, probably better than a lot of the servers they're helping to protect. Um, I think you probably just need to weigh the risks of those seeds being being compromised in some manner versus the um, the awesome um, convenience of being able to drop a phone in the lake and restore it and then have all your seeds back. Um, upgrade your phone. You shouldn't lose them on an upgrade, but yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the other way to do that is just to have those seeds uh, stored in another device. Um, if it's a Google where you can only have one TOTP seed, then you just, when they show you the QR code, you scan it with your phone and you scan it with your tablet or your Android phone or, or your other phone. Um, some people actually save those seeds in some sort of password vault. Uh, so I know some people who save them in a, a USB key that they then lock in a safe at home. Um, okay, it's still something you have. It's a something you have, not a something that you know or something that you put out at Google and hope nobody gets. Um, so there's better ways to have that convenience. It's not quite as quick, but it is. there are ways to recover from losing your device other than having them saved at Authy. Um, you might choose to have some things in Authy that are you know less important and a couple of things that are super critical uh, stored in another device or just have multiple devices. Um, one of the, the nice things about Duo is that you can have multiple devices signed into the account um, as opposed to Google Authenticator where you just have one key. If you revoke it, you revoke all the devices that have that key. It's, they don't really understand having multiple TOTP devices or seeds. Sorry, I don't have a lot of short answers. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's why we're asking you the question. You hit on a really interesting uh, tangent, though, if I may tangent, um, about using LastPass. Um, I use other uh, browser plugins uh, for our password manager, um, but they all now have a TOTP feature as part of that browser plugin, which kind of just wigs me out because that's exactly what it's doing. It's it's syncing those uh, TOTP seeds uh, between browsers and between devices. Yeah, yeah. LastPass, the Authenticator, they're doing something kind of strange where you, I think you have to use the LastPass Authenticator on your phone to then fill in the codes on your extension on your web browser. I'm not sure to what extent they're they're storing or moving codes around. I'm not sure if they actually have the codes on the LastPass app and they're sending them through that to the browser extension. I, I, or they're using the authenticator as a permissioning, you know, thing. It's a little strange. Whenever people do something that's kind of hinky and weird, it makes it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like some people want to use a TOTP soft token on their computer. No, it's supposed to be a different device. Um, so. Yeah, using my password manager to manage my MFA tokens of whatever variety really always just gives me the heebie-jeebies, and I've never yep. even considered doing it. Much and, less you know, thought if, about it. If things give you the heebie-jeebies, then maybe don't do them until you understand them very well. Because you want to make give you the heebie-jeebies. That's a good sign with, with or security, a bad sign. You just want to make with anything in life. You just want to make a, an informed decision. And with security, that's hard to do sometimes, especially when it comes to this stuff. To what level were you involved with rolling out MFA at the university? Um, pretty heavily. I'm uh, the primary on our duo two-factor solution. Uh, we got it 
two and something years ago for PCI. Um, really locked down to just sort of PCI servers, be they Windows or Unix. But we knew we would be looking at something for the campus level uh, at a later date. Uh, and we did go ahead and expand it to the campus um, last year. And we have enrolled about 30,000 accounts. Um, there's a team. The 2FA is not a security alone thing by any stretch of the imagination. One of the things we first did was get a, a, a cross-unit, cross-functional team together with absolutely senior help desk people, training people, as well as security and web services because we were going to use it for our single sign-on, so we pulled in our single sign-on uh, group as well. Um, and we did the project to start with with that team. We started with all that team before we ever did, you know, much beyond pick a product, which we actually did go back and reevaluate, but yeah, looked like Duo was a good solution for us for EDUs for a lot of reasons. Um, and yeah, so I, I was involved for the entire time. Um, there's a lot more technical things than you'd think about because it seems very simple. Like, oh, you, you just press the button on your phone and, you know, you put the thing on the computer and it works. And there's a lot of subtle moving parts, especially when you integrate it into a single sign-on web solution. Um, and if you have a lot of users who are coming from very different communities, who use a lot of different devices in a different manner and all over the world, it's, there's a lot of, it's a lot more complex than you'd think. Maybe at a lot of small businesses, it's very simple and that's awesome. Less so for us. What were some of the decisions or how did you make the decision to use Duo? What was the the process? I mean, I, I assume that they were doing educational discounts because I've seen them in use in other educational, educational institutions. But were there specific security features that they had that other people didn't? Was, was there other benefits to using them? So certainly their costs were attractive. Um, they have a very steep educational discount. I'm not sure if that's public right now. I'm certainly not going to go into it, but it makes it very attractive versus, a, say, an RSA type solution. Um, the infrastructure rollout is very, very low because, in general, um, it's a cloud-hosted solution. Um, they, by the time that we selected them, had a self-enrollment portal for users. Um, which, again, makes that very attractive. We don't have to write anything. Uh, users can just click through it on their phone or on their computer. It's pretty easy to use. Um, they have a delegated administration um, console with different levels of permissioning. Um, so we were easily able to add help desk employees uh, and training employees in who had varying levels of permission versus a security group. Uh, that was very nice. They actually have included now scoping within that, so you can actually subdivide your users into organizational units and then scope administrators at different levels to various scopes. And that was not something that was in a lot of solutions. Um, so some of those features. Uh, so there was very little code or anything to write. We have written a little bit of provisioning code to integrate with our overall system to say, oh, you are this class of user, you have to go have two-factor now and you put it into enforcement group. And, but they have a very nice REST API that's very easy to use um, that makes it easy to do those things. So they, they also, we knew we, we were going to be doing it on Macs and on Windows and on Unix and integrated into web. We had a lot of historical LDAP type authenticating interfaces. 
and Duo has an LDAP and a RADIUS proxy. We use it, we integrate it into our RADIUS services as well. So it integrated into everything. I mean, from the get-go, like two, three years ago, it had all these things. And so it was very, it's very adaptable. Um, and, and Duo's preferred method is really not just TOTP seeds. And actually their app does the older protocol, which is HOTP which is an interesting deep dive if you're going to read the RFCs on HOTP and TOTP. But, um, but their main is, is really a push notification. It's a, um, just like a Facebook message to your phone that tells you that someone's trying to authenticate from this IP address to this service as you or as this user. Is this okay? And yes or no. Just click the button and you're in. And if you click no, it says, oh, well, was this a mistake? Or is this you know, fraudulent? And if you click fraudulent, security gets a report. And we investigate those. So, um, so it just it, it's it really was very modern. Uh, the push notification kind of thing um, will, and they also support U2F keys, which is awesome. Um, and those methods are really going to be the replacement for everything we're doing now. We're going to do we're all moving towards things like push and U2F cryptographically, um, and man in the middle risk wise, they're much better. Um, codes, whether they're delivered by SMS or voice, which are, is a whole other problem, which we've seen some news stories about intercepting those. We knew about that for a while. But even uh, TOTP-generated codes, uh, you know, a sufficiently complex phishing page will just ask for the code. People will give it. They will use it immediately, and they're in. So we're going to have to drop most of those other things and move to things like push, um, like Google Prompt is another example, um, or, uh, or things like U2F keys or YubiKeys. It sounds like for a lot of organizations, especially larger ones, that much like the original LDAP challenges, that the problem isn't the technology. It isn't installing the server or configuring the base service. It's understanding how your organization works and then tying it into all of the things that it needs to tie in the way it needs to be tied in. Yeah, uh, it is It is complex. And those are a lot of the moving parts. They're not specifically 2FA parts. They are how it's going to affect user experience. Um, knowing your user base is extremely important. Providing good training uh, is really important. We first, we sort of did an ever-expanding rollout of Duo. We really, we, we put the entire team in first. Then we put in the, the um, other IT members in our organization. Then we went out and put in the, the larger uh, enterprise IT administrators and helped as people out there. Um, so that they could learn it and then be prepared to help their users. And then we put in high priority users, then we put in employees, and soon we'll do all of the students. But we sort of expanded a, an order of magnitude at a time, and we did a lot of training at each step and pushed training out to those users. We identified the users who were gonna be problematic, who are less skilled at technology, things like that, gave them focus training. I found that 2FA, people are really sensitive to this, just like they hate having to change their password. Doing anything that affects their login process is very upsetting to people. It's a very personal experience, it seems. So, you know, you're messing with how I log in. I had, I don't like this. This is hard. Um, so, it's a lot of people. You're changing something that's very fundamental to folks. So, on the practical end, if I'm a um, highly attractive target at said university, and I'm in my office and at my desktop, and I've checked my email... I get a page that a machine is is running out of file space, and I want to SSH into that machine. Uh, what does that authentication workflow look like? So it depends. Um, first, maybe kind of step back. 
are you going to put two-factor on every single machine or are you going to sort of establish a walled garden and then you have a sort of a bastion host that you go through to get there? We have oh, both quit models. cutting to my campus. point. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry. Um, so we have both of those environments. We have um, environments that you have to go through a bastion host, which itself does two-factor on, let's say, a Windows RDP login or a Unix login. And from there, you get to internal systems. And then we have systems that are just straight up, everyone has two-factor to get in. Um, if it's the, but, but either way, the experience in terms of getting into the, the Bastion shows or the, the server that has two-factor is the same. Um, if it's an RDP connection with, let's say, Duo, uh, you put in your user credentials and then you get a prompt for your two-factor. And you either sort of do a push notification or you type in a code. Um, if it's SSH, it's very similar. Um, you use a username and password, and then it asks you for a little menu. It's a text-based menu. You get to do a push or something. You can have either one just automatically send you a push to make it quick and just hit the button on your phone. Or you can have it ask you a menu. Um, if it's a menu, you can put in a code from your app, or you can plug in your YubiKey. And in this case, it's a real YubiKey, not the U2F key or the U2F side of a YubiKey. It's the YubiKey, the black ones, the YubiKey 4 Plus. They, you push them in, they will, you press their button, and they generate this giant AES encrypted one-time password. Um, but the nice thing about that is it works on, it just fakes being a, a keyboard on your computer, mm -hmm. so it just types it in. So it works in any interface where your, your keyboard would work. Um, that's what's nice about Yubi, the real YubiKeys. They're more expensive, but they do lots more things. Um, the... Uh, so for yeah for you for a server you can't use the U2F key you've got to use um, YubiKeys. Um, but I I know lots of people who do this all day. They take a YubiKey, they plug it into their computer at the beginning of the day. Every time they log in, they just reach over and push the button on it, and they're you know after using their password and they're in. It is possible to use SSH keys and Duo. Maybe. It's much more complex. The SSH kind of keys bypass the normal authentication with SSHD. There are more subtle ways to do that. Um, most people use username and password, not SSH key, because SSH keys are not something you know. That's something you have. So if you're using a SSH key and a two-factor like a, a your, your device, that's just something you have and something you have. That's what we call a repeated first factor. That's not a second factor. That's not a two-factor authentication. So that's not really the same. So we wouldn't normally suggest that. Um, SSH keys, however, are really useful for automated things like Ansible or SCPing files around as part of a job. And so if you have to do those things, two-factor doesn't really work very well. Um, I was about to say that one of my coworkers got one of the YubiKeys a couple of years ago, and he, he was using the SSH key portion of the YubiKey. And then we had to run an action on the Elk cluster and on 300 servers and via Ansible. And it wanted him to go and poke his, his YubiKey every time it wanted to make the next connection. And eventually he stopped and said, can you do this for me? Because I can't sit here and just poke the key hundreds and hundreds of times today. Right. And that's not really a two-factor issue. That's sort of just the, where do I keep my SSH key? And, and, mm -hmm. and maybe YubiKey is actually a more secure place. In, oh, it's in much, much to, better, but it's keep more SSH inconvenient key. depending on what you're doing. Right. It changes your, your first factor sort of SSH key login. But regardless, <clears throat> if it had two-factor turned on those servers at the same time, or if you had uh, at the time, um, then every time you want to do that on three, 
on 300 servers, you'd have to use your SSH key in however manner you did that. And then you'd have to use, let's say, the YubiKey AES one-time password or a push on your phone. And that just gets crazy. So what we, we've, we face this problem as well. Um, and what I have generally suggested that people do is establish service accounts to use for things like Ansible or file moving. And then on the SSHD side, on the server side, you can restrict what those accounts can do, what commands they can run, that whether they can do port mirroring or file copying, etc. So if it's not going to be a two-factored account because it needs to be automated, you just lock it down to where it can do very little, uh, very few things. There are some complex ways to do that with SSH, but so you, you mitigate the risk of a non-two-factored login. Most of the clients I've ended up working at uh, really focus on not having passwords. And all of my SSH access has been by SSH keys. So I've got way too many SSH keys. And I look at the ability for the YubiKey4s to uh, store the SSH key for me. But it's also my second factor authentication for the devices that require that, which tickles my sense of I'm not actually doing two-factor authentication. And you are correct. That is a repeated first factor. It is something you have and something you have. So um, at this some... point, even though I bought the expensive YubiKey 4, um, I've just solely been using it for U2F. Sure. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, YubiKey 4 Plus is, I say, you know, 4 Plus or the Nanos and everything else. They're, they're sort of two keys in one. They're a U2F key on one side and they're a uh, a YubiKey traditional on the other. They do a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, everyone's using things like SSH keys, like your employers, and they should because passwords suck. Um, as a as a single factor, they are horrible um, for the general mass of folks. And that's why you see uh, Google coming out with their advanced security and their Titan keys, and what that really is is replacing passwords. It looks like to me that they're just basically, if you're only going to have one factor, which is what most people have, have this one instead. Have a U2F key instead of a password because people are much less likely to give it to someone in Nigeria. Um, but it's not two-factor. It's, it's just a different single factor. It's um, a different, more secure single factor. It's certainly, for, for most people, it is a more secure single factor. Um, because they're just less likely, less apt to lose that U2F key than they are the password um, to a phishing attack. Um, As I was sort of coming to understand multi-factor authentication and how and where you apply it, um, it was really easy for me to think of, you know, all my machines are integrated with LDAP or a password file or have SSH keys installed uh, via Puppet. so. If you want to add the um, the Google PAM module that that sets up uh, second factor authentication, that means you also end up having to manage those uh, TOTP seeds and distribute them, which that was a big sign to me that that this is not how you solve that problem. Yeah, the Google the the TOTP uh, PAM module that Google I guess they wrote it. Uh, I remember looking at it and playing with it years ago, and it it does require that the seeds be accessible to every server that needs to authenticate, which means you're spreading that seed all over the place. I mean, 
ostensibly you should use a different seed for every server. But my God, I cannot imagine managing that with your phone and all those integrations. Or you, you know, since you're distributing SSH keys with puppets, you're already using puppets, so you can provision whatever the heck you want. Or you use a secret server like like Thosotic or uh, HashCorp's Vault to go and request seeds at will as needed, and you kind of have to hook up your own integrations system middleware for that. Blah blah blah. You know, it's non it's non simple. Again, that's a nice thing about Duo. It's one of the reasons we're using it because we. You do have to provision the Duo agent, and it does have a key that gets put in, but that key is just to authenticate the agent to the, uh, to the Duo upstream server service in the cloud to say, I am a recognized client. But it's not involved in signing exactly, um, it's not involved in authenticating you. Uh, so it doesn't, it's not, it's not particular to the user. So but it you're... sounds like you're a big proponent of the Duo app, the, the push experience. How do you rate or rank or validate the the physical keys? What do, what do you think is good and bad about them? What do you recommend people actually get, and how do you distribute those? So, um, let me think a second. I think for most people who... So we're at now, I mean, your podcast is really aimed at the server guys. So a U2F key, which is web only and initially Chrome, and now it has Firefox support, sorta, and not yet in really an Edge or Safari, is not their key because they probably need to use it. For lots of things that are not web. Um, so for them, uh, they'd need the real YubiKeys, the four pluses. Um, I think they're awesome um, when used with Duo. They can also be used with SSH, as you said, or um, some other ways. Um, I would definitely just look at the cost of licensing your two-factor solution and bundle in the cost of the keys and give them to everyone. But one of the things that we really focus on with our users is having a backup device. So I would also mandate that they use a smartphone app and also have the YubiKey. And it's called a key, so you can put it on your keychain. The people put it in their pocket, they put it in their wallet, they put it in this, and then it's not with them. Then. Now, put it on your key ring. Most people have either their smartphone or their keys or both with them all the time. They need to have it. It doesn't work if they don't have it. So um, I would just provision them initially and get them out to people. And then you have to sort of pick your security team or whoever your two-factor folks are. Um, with Duo, you cannot self-enroll YubiKeys, um, so they have to be hand-enrolled by your Duo administrator. You, If you buy a big enough batch from Yubico, you can actually get them to give you the seeds as a file that you can mass import and provision into Duo and then hand them out. And when people, you would provision one, they just give the serial number off of the back of the key and link it over to them in Duo. Or you have to do it by hand. I did like 15 in a row the other day for an entity on campus. It took me all of, you know, 10 minutes. Well, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I was just I was curious about that physical process. Using the AES one-time password function with Duo um, is as simple as pushing the button at the prompt, and it just types in the thing, and then they're logged in. And Unix guys love it. So, Darren, you hit on a, a topic that that I think is definitely really important. And that's the topic of backup devices because folks lose their phones. 
crap happens. And clearly you want to be able to recover access to your account. Um, I know once when I got my new phone, like four years ago, um, I had just started with a new employer. I had set up all of my two-factor authentication stuff on my old phone and I upgraded to the new phone and the app didn't work correctly. And I thought I had lost all of my codes. Fortunately, I hadn't. But, you know, the last thing I really wanted to do was go up to my new employer and said, yeah, I just lost all my codes. Can we redo all of last week's work again? But I think the the thing that tickles my my danger sense about backup devices is if you want to focus on having YubiKeys as a physical something that you have, if you also have that key and your Authy app as a backup device, how does that improve your security situation? If you have the key and the Authy device, how does it improve your situation? Yeah, you've got multiple different uh, something that you have that you can use to authenticate to Gmail or or whatever service you're registered with. So you say how does it improve? You mean, you're asking, to, does that pose an additional risk to have a backup device? Yeah. All right. So certainly the more things that you have, um, the more likely it is that you'll lose one of them, perhaps. I'm actually, you'd have to do some data and some statistical analysis to find that out. I'm not sure that just because you have your keys and your phone, that makes it more likely you'll lose one or the other. Um, the... So I think I put in this in the doc. In security, we have a concept called CIA, uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, three precepts. Mostly people think about security as confidentiality, um, but integrity, making sure that people can't change the data without you understanding that's happened, or availability, just to make sure your system is up and working, are, are also important but often neglected. And the lack of a backup device threatens your availability, you, you, and that, that people don't realize it until they can't log in. So you may weigh the risks of total unavailability, I can't log in, versus the slight increase in risk of losing a factor, uh, which would be which would threaten your confidentiality of someone else logging into your account. Um, I, generally, I, I don't think that the risk of having an additional backup device that you also control very highly, keys, phone, is too great. But the risk of not having one is huge. If you don't, someone somewhere in your organization will be locked out at some point. And if they cannot get help on Saturday night at, at, at 11 o'clock or in France where they happen to be traveling, you may suffer further degradation in the system when Brendan can't log in to fix the, the, um, the elk cluster that's you know crashed again. Or, you know, shards have sharded all over itself, etc. Damn that elk cluster. Yeah, my first thought moving towards security keys is, yay, I can finally migrate off Authy, um, which I use a lot on my phone, and I realize ends up moving my TOTP keys around, or seeds around. Um, but that's not how the security model works. My phone becomes my backup device, my YubiKey becomes my preferred method. Well, and the YubiKey isn't a TOTP device, although the Yubico makes a TOTP authenticator that generates codes that your key unlocks the authenticator and it generates the code and you copy it. There's a kind of a, an indirect way to, to do that with the Yubico authenticator app on your device. It's kind of strange. Um, 
but no, it's it's not really a replacement. Um, but if you want to get away from the Authy, oh, it's syncing my codes everywhere. Just don't use Authy. Go use the Google yeah. Authenticator app instead. And now you're less worried about losing your Google Authenticator codes because you have this other device, a YubiKey, that works. Um, and you know what some people do with their YubiKey or their U2F key is they enroll two. They enroll the one on their keychain, and again, they enroll one on their uh, that they put in the safe at home. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a phone and a key. It can be two keys, as long as you can keep the other one safe somewhere. It needs to be something you have, or at least something you control access to very tightly. So, you know, the safe at home, or the safety deposit box at the bank, is generally another good place to keep one. As long as your backup is accessible while you're traveling in France. A key in the safe at home may not work for that. <laughs> Unless you have very long arms, or you've invented the teleporter gun, or something. So one of the the other interesting things that I've been thinking about in preparation for this this call and this conversation is a lot of people talk about two FA, and they talk about biometrics. And I know that you have some opinions on the validity of using <laughs> biometrics for two FA. And i I would like our, our dear listeners to have your take on that. Um, so in all of this, I did not purport to be an expert. There are many people who understand and grok 2FA much better than I. Um, so don't take my word as gospel on any of these things. It is my humble opinion. Um, there is a great, while I was doing research on 2FA and biometrics, I found a great document from NIST. Um, I don't have the number at, at my uh, fingertips, but I'll bet it can show up in the show notes later. Um, on presence attack detection, uh, PAD, and defenses against that. So what they're doing is uh, studying how people attack a biometric sensor. Um, Talc and latex gloves. Well, lots of ways. So how, how they can, they can um, pass a biometric uh, test without the presence or willing presence of the actual person. And the attacks that they have documented in this and how you defend against it are eye-opening. Um, things like detecting that the finger that's on the sensor is actually alive and not a dead finger you cut off someone. Um, same with eyes. Um, things like that, which is kind of scary, but this is NIST, so they do these standards for the federal government, so one assumes that people are James Bond doing this at some place in the world against some military organization like you see in the movies. Um, so liveness detection in general, um, or willingness detection is hard to do, uh, with biometrics, with unobserved biometrics. So, you know, doing biometrics securely often involves, um, you go to the, the secret vault or you're going to, uh, the military base and you enter a bulletproof glass walled man trap. So you come in one door, it locks behind you and you don't get out unless they say it's okay. Then you... You present your ID and you look into the retinal scanner. You put your fingerprint on, and if they're observing you, that could be you know remotely via camera or in person, uh, then they can be assured that you do not have someone's dead hand that you're pressing to the thing, or someone's skull up to there, or some complicated retinal device in front of the camera. Uh, so it's easy to detect you know people trying to fake out a biometric sensor if someone is observing it. 
Without it, however, it's nearly impossible. It's, it's very difficult. Apple's trying very hard with the face ID with all their infrared stuff to make sure that you're a real face, but that doesn't necessarily help if it's um, someone with a $5 wrench making you look into your phone, a la XKCD. Um, so I am kind of nervous about bad metrics. We've also seen uh, in current terms of law enforcement, uh, courts can force you to use your self, your biometric, to unlock a device. They cannot force you to give up a password. Um, or they can compel the production of a fingerprint or one of can those things. force you to use, that's right. So um, I don't like biometrics that are unobserved. Um, and I, I don't know... I don't know a lot of places that are really using biometrics. Uh, obviously, um, everyone's phone has a touch ID sensor, and I basically tell people the risks of that and, and not to do it. Or Apple has added something on the iPhones where you can emergency mode sort of click your phone five times, and now it requires a passcode, or it requires it if you turn it off and on. So I tell students, you know, if you're going to be in a risky situation where you don't want someone to use your, your thumbprint on your phone without your knowledge, like you're going to sleep, um, you just turn your phone off and then turn it back on, and now it'll take a passcode to wake it up. Now these days you can sort of click it five times, you get the same respect. So you have to understand the risks of biometrics. Um, Apple added that in specifically because people were upset about people unlocking their phones with their fingerprints. Um, so I'm not a big biometrics fan because it's hard to do well. Um, I don't necessarily mean accurately, although from a statistical sense, their accuracy means positively identifying the real person. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. It's too easy to fake. And by unobserved, you mean the biometric authentication process being observed by a third party. Mm -hmm. I do, in fact. And that's my word. I'm, it's not something I've, I've read, so I'm, I'm probably using the wrong term. Works for me. It's certainly not um, the sole authentication method that you should be using, which unfortunately people are with Face ID and Touch ID. Um, it can be an additional factor that's required onto a password or a, something you have, or even as a third. Um, so a password and something you know, something you have, your phone, and then also biometric. But, you know, we sort of do that. You sort of do biometric all the time. Every time you go to the gym and you have to give them an ID and it has your face on it and they scan your ID and they compare your face, they're doing a biometric um, um, evaluation. And they look at you to make sure you're alive. But they're observing you, right? They know that you're there and you're not holding someone else's head in front of you or just a sign, picture of their face in front of you. Like, why do you have the picture of your face in front of you? So that's observed. So we do biometric all the time with, with visual identification, but it's observed every time. Cool. Thank you. So I don't have any other kind of high level questions. I've, I've hit you with all of the, the things that I had tickling my brain. Um, I'm hoping our, our dear listeners will ask us more questions so we can have an excuse to invite you back. This has been a very stimulating conversation. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite, favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 57th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Darren Fowles. Thanks. Good night.